This is Ever Present, an Eden Project podcast, equipping you to connect deeply with God, yourself, and others. Welcome to the Ever Present podcast. This is Duke Rivard with the Eden Project, joined by Todd Wormers and Phil Herndon of Ten Man Ministries. Excited to talk about guilt with you guys. I'm excited to talk about guilt. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> guilt is an emotion that everybody knows. Uh, it's, it's actually one that probably maybe of all the ones we're going to talk about, uh, Christians maybe have the most category for because we talk about the gospel, we talk about the work of Christ, we talk about how essential it is that we have something to, some way to deal with our guilt. Um, and yet I think there is nuance here that you guys are going to bring that will will shine even new and fresh light on guilt. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's really going to help our audience. So we're just really excited as we continue in this series and, and really with all the ever-present content, helping people really understand the interior life so we can be fully present with ourselves and really have the foundation to then go be fully present with God or others. Mm. Um, it's really what we're after together. That's why we're, we're here having this conversation and, and excited to talk about guilt. Uh, Todd, we'll start with you as... When I'm feeling guilt, what's happening? What's going on in, in a person's interior life? Yeah, guilt is the gift that God gave us or the feeling that God gave us to allow us to know we've done something wrong, to break relationship with ourselves to God or to other people. So it's, you know, I think it, it is the gift of the Holy Spirit for sure. Like, man, thank God for guilt. Thank God that uh, there's a thing in me that says, man, that, that is not okay. And what you did is not okay. So it's a, it's the feeling God gave us to allow us to know yeah, you, you've harmed someone, you've violated them, you've violated my commands. Uh, so that, that, that is what it is for me. Okay. And it's set against some kind of objective standard like God's law or the U.S. law or there's some standard of, of moral judgment, integrity, whatever, and I've clearly not. That's right. I've not hit that mark. I'm short of that. Yeah, a lot of people, you know, they come to us, I feel guilt, I feel shame. And so this is what I always tell people, like, here's how you know if you're, it's, if you're guilty of something or if it's shame. So a lot of people get guilt and shame confused. So guilt is very, very objective. It's, it's black or it's white. There's not much. Uh, you either know you've sinned or you know you haven't sinned. Shame is very subjective in its matter. So objective, it's like black or white, there's not you know, you know, your, your kids know when they've done something right or wrong. So it's very objective. Okay. That's helpful. So, yeah, the, the guy, the police officer pulls you over. He shows you the radar gun. It says you were going 87. It's just kind of obvious mm-hmm. that you were breaking the law. That's right. You're guilty. Yeah, that's helpful. Uh, Phil, how do you nuance that? As, as you're trying to describe to somebody, uh, maybe, maybe people are, maybe the audience is fairly aware of guilt, but uh, what's happening in their life as they sort of wrestle with this this feeling, this experience? Yeah, Paul says in Romans chapter 9, he says, you know, y'all, and of course he's speaking to, he, he's Jewish, and he's saying, you know, e- even the Gentiles, which is like, <laughs> but even the Gentiles recognize on a, there's a level they recognize right and wrong, harm and not harm. He, he says, even them, he's appealing to uh, the church in Rome to say, look, there, there's something inside human beings that, that lights up, that activates when I've crossed a line, crossed a moral or ethical line that I know I needed to stay on this side of, something inside of me says, that's harmful. And when you do something harmful, you need this feeling called guilt to let me know that not only am I limited, like shame, as Todd was saying, but in my limitation, which is subjective, 
in my limitation, I have done something that crossed a line and caused harm to someone, to, to God. And, as, you know, David uh, made the comment, uh, made the statement that, uh, you know, I, I've sinned against God. And jo- Joseph in Genesis, Joseph said, I, I did not want to sin against God in that way with Potiphar's wife. And so ultimately, we know that when we have committed sin, when we've committed harm, that that is an offense to God and that I've done out here in this world to someone. Hmm. It's interesting that you say it that way because it's a relational offense. Mm-hmm. It's not, I have, I, I'm guilty of um, a, a wrong keystroke with my computer. You know, it's mm-hmm. like there's something in, in relationship, yes. actually. So there's somebody on the other side of it in relationship who has essentially been harmed or disobeyed mm-hmm. or some, some sever in relationship. That's helpful. I don't think I've ever quite put guilt squarely in the relational space. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes we feel uh, guilty maybe in other ways. But uh, one of the nuance that I've heard, um, you know, is false guilt. So sometimes you will have people who feel guilty. That's the, that's the language they're using for the emotional state. Uh, how would you help us understand false guilt when somebody's really actually owning something that's not a moral offense, but they're experiencing it internally like it is? Yeah, that. You know, Todd and I are going to be flying home tonight, and if there's some kind of delay um, in the flight, for example, it would not be uncommon for like the gate agent to say, man, I feel, go home and tell his wife or her husband or whomever, I feel so guilty about people having to wait for that flight. And they kept like, well, that's, that's false guilt because you may have other feelings about it. Um, but but guilt is not what's happening there because you're there's not something in your conscience being activated that you did something that caused harm to all these passengers. Mm-hmm. That's an example of that. False guilt is when I assign blame to myself or being the cause of harm that I didn't harm. Mm-hmm. But I have feelings about it. I don't know what to call. I have feelings about all these people sitting at the gate, and they're not going to get home to Nashville tonight, and I, I feel guilty about that. Well, you may feel fear or you may feel uh, just a sense of shame around the limitation, but it's not guilt because it didn't do anything that foisted harm on these people. That's helpful. Yeah, I've, I've counseled people before from pretty dysfunctional families where maybe even a parent assigned guilt mm-hmm. that was not on the child. So yeah. look what you made me do. Okay, that the the adult acts out in some way, but then attempts to manipulate the child mm-hmm. or someone else with assigning that guilt to them. And so if you've lived in an environment where that's been done to you over and over, I could see how somebody's lines would get a little blurred about what am I actually responsible for and what am I not responsible for around true guilt and false guilt. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, that's a helpful distinction. And that's very common, uh, Duke, in dysfunctional families. We had a kind of a lunch conversation yesterday around of families who have addiction in the family and what happens dynamics there and very very often it's very common for a, a family with classic addiction or you know rageaholism or control freaks as we said earlier today in another podcast for the child to walk with the home and say man I just feel so guilty for how hard my mom had it because my dad was so unreasonable or vice versa and you'll hear that very often from unhealthy families. The child will leave, and then the child may now be 58 years old. You're talking to but they, I just feel guilty. And they'll take on guilt that isn't theirs because of what the literature calls ACA syndrome, adult child of alcoholism syndrome, in which I just take on the false guilt of anything that happens that has caused someone to have feelings or had to have some kind of heartache. It's very common. Absolutely. Yeah, so there's a lot of people who need some help to really identify when is it legitimate guilt and when it's when is it when mm-hmm. is it not 
Um, let's talk about the impairment of guilt. If I won't really deal honestly with it, okay? Maybe I, maybe it came up. You said it flashes inside of us a little bit. Our mm-hmm. conscience says this is a moral offense, but I'm not willing to to deal with it. What what are the impairments of guilt look like in relationship? I think the first thing I would say is oftentimes, you know, the impairment would be again what we talked a little bit earlier about the toxic shame piece, and you know, with guilt it is it becomes I made because I made a mistake. I'm now the mistake I've made. Because I'm the mistake I've made, I'm no longer lovable, likable, attachable, wanted. And so then we carry that with us that nobody really wants me because I am the very mistake I I didn't want to cause. I caused it, and now I'm not worth being forgiven. Okay, so it becomes an identity if Mm -hmm. we won't process it, if we won't deal, pursue forgiveness. That's right. Mm -hmm. That's helpful. That's the reason the impairment as we call it is is the same for shame and guilt because both of those feelings have to do with some sort of limitation have a subjective limitation about some things i'm not very good at and have an objective limitation like man i'm i mess up i sin i make mistakes i have oversights i cause harm i don't mean to cause but the if i if i'm not dealing with that identification and exploration and expression of my guilt, then it turns into the same thing that shame that my uh, human limitation turned into. I can't. I I did something wrong, therefore I am. And then fill in the blank: inadequate, ridiculous, dumb, stupid, whatever the horrible words are that we put in those blanks when we make a mistake or or, or have sin. Okay, and if that continues for a long, long time, let's say I go a decade without really confessing sin. I don't maybe even know the gospel, or I don't know how to apply the gospel in sanctification. Uh, where do I end up in utter isolation around around that? Yeah, it's just I think uh, Todd weighing on this too. It, it, it's shame, shame. A word called shamelessness. It's like if I go so long without recognizing sin, without wrongdoing, um, I will become in this isolated place um, called shamelessness, in which I'm not going to admit either internally or out here. I've ever had any wrongdoing because I'm so wrapped up in the insulation of a lack of confession, mm. both of need and of, and of offense, that I live in such a way that I'm perfect. And there's a prime example, and I don't say this at, at all to to laugh about this happening. We would very often in treatment, we would have, and I say guys because we treated men, uh, men only and their families, but the men were the actual patients. A man would come in, and he has got absolute wreckage behind him, family, families, job, jobs behind him in the wake of addictive disease. And then he would, because he's not aware of his need to confess, would begin to dispense advice around how to raise children or how to be a husband or how to run a business or how to do this and that. It's like, man, this is where that's shameless. Like you're the last guy not to shame you, but you're the last guy that needs to be giving any kind of feedback around that. But shamelessness, a person can become, and I've, I've done it um, often can become so insulated by their lack of confession, which is the key to paying attention to guilt uh, that I will, start saying things just for my need to say it, to remain in my insulation. It's just shameless. Yeah, there's some denial and self-righteousness mm-hmm. and all of that. I'm not really seeing myself clearly, and so I don't well, even the really— the story of, yeah. you know, Luke, um, there in Luke 18, where it's the Pharisee and the tax collector, and the Pharisee's like, I'm just glad I'm not like him. Like, no, you're just like that, man. That, that was—the Pharisees were so shameless— I mean, they live shameless lives. Now, they live shamelessly through performance. I got to perform. I got to make sure everyone else around me performs. But it, there was no relationship. 
in the performance. And that's, that's what we've been talking about. It's the guilt. When we've, guilt, when we've done something wrong, it, it's the thing that breaks relationship. We need forgiveness to restore the relationship. But the Pharisee lived, lived in that place of, I, I got to keep performing to, to belong and matter. And that's a, he then looks at the tax collector and he's like, I'm just, thank God I'm not like that person. <laughs> so that's yeah. where we get to that place of shamelessness of judging other people. I, I remember being in treatment and I, I said it so I can speak to me. I, I remember watching the news and uh, this lady had, I, I, it's a really grotesque story, but she had killed her baby for drugs. And I remember coming in and processing that, being angry with the lady. And, you know, I was judging the lady and Phil said, you're just like her. And I was like, what? And he said, you know, you're one decision away from making that same choice in your sin, in your addiction. And I was like, man, that is so true. I'm one decision away from being shameless that leads me to the very thing I was judging that lady for. Wow. How do, is shamelessness, is it close to a seared conscience? When we see the scriptures, idea of a seared conscience, somebody who's just gotten to the place where they're no longer sensitive to the Spirit. They're no longer sensitive to that feeling of guilt. Yes, and Duke, there, there is a story that covers the gamut of what we're talking about. David, uh, King David, the psalmist of most of the psalms, and the king, and the slayer of Goliath, he, he, Nathan came to him to confront him about this story, this allegory, this fable, about this guy who was just shameless and came in and was just killing this precious lamb that belonged to someone else. David's like, man, that guy, that guy ought to be. And Nathan's like, well, David, that's you. Yep. So David was in his shamelessness. He had committed adultery and, and had impregnated Bathsheba out of wedlock and, all, and, and had her husband killed. And yet when he heard a story that he believed to be hypothetical or he believed to be happening somewhere else in his shamelessness, he said, man— that pointing, you know, the old AA adage is, every, I'm pointing this way, I got three back at me. Yep. He didn't catch the three back at me part because of shamelessness. And so he's railing on this person, this story, and, and, and Nathan brings to him, well, David, that's you. And that's where we see David um, asking for the forgiveness in Psalm 32. is a, It's a brutal psalm about the human condition when we're not confessing our guilt before the Lord. David said, when I kept silent over that, when I didn't say a word about when I did not make confession, my Davidness, my essence was oozing out of me. I was wasting away at my bones. My very essence was leaving. I completely lost myself in my silence, in this shamelessness and toxic shame of what I had done. It become so seared mm. that I could hear a story about someone doing way this side of what I did as an action and immediately jump in and what well, what that guy deserves. Mm. But when I made confession, God began the, I could see the beginning of God's restoration process to me. Yeah, that's, the, that's a great segue to the need that we have when we feel guilt and the gift of it. If I'm moving in the right direction with my guilt, what does that look like? Yeah, it's, uh, well, it is confession, you know, agreeing with God as to the, uh, the, the profound offense, and you know, R.C. Sproul says cosmic treason is what sin is. And David's like, man, I'm aware that I have committed treason against the, the Lord and, and, and creator of the universe. And the first step is that, you know, agreement with God and to be able to say, this is not just what I have done, but I'm recognizing on an emotional and breach of relational level of just how, treason, how much treason this is. I think it goes with what, you know, the difference between 
what, a seared conscience and confession is what Paul says in Second Corinthians, right? He's like a worldly sorrow doesn't really do anything for you. It's godly guilt that leads to repentance. It's that godly guilt that leads us to a place of like repentance. And I don't know where I picked this up at, but I, so I won't say it's mine, but uh, I read and uh, it says repentance will lead us to forgiveness. Re- forgiveness will lead us to reconciliation. Reconciliation will lead us to restore relationship, which is ultimately forgiveness. I, I, I don't know where I picked up that up that from but uh, that is the that is what we that's the gift is like oh man i can be forgiven like thank god for guilt because the the feeling of guilt says there is a god that will forgive me there's people around me that will forgive me that and that forgiveness will ultimately lead lead to freedom freedom Mm -hmm. back in relationship with god myself and other people yeah that's beautiful as you're talking about a seared conscience and then we're talking about you know psalm 51 david saying created me a clean heart Um, it's almost like my heart was hardened, my heart was seared, my heart was just in the wrong mm-hmm. place as it re- related to my sin. It's like, give me a new soft heart. Give me a, a different disposition in relationship. I want to be reconciled to relationship. I don't want to do life shameless apart from people, not really looking at the impact of, of what um, what that is. Uh, let's talk about freedom. Um, you, you talked about Psalm 32. You talked about wasting away. There's a lot of um, language around captivity, being enslaved to sin in the scriptures. We know, I think even experientially, we've all lived somewhat mm-hmm. enslaved to sin. Where that yeah. was that's a helpful metaphor. Uh, what is what what is freedom like? I mean, and how do we how do we understand freedom around confession? Yeah. If you to, just for an example, if I have sinned against you, Duke, and I've done something, and even if you don't know I've done it, I've gone out here and just said terrible things about you to sin against you. Even if you don't know it, I know it. Mm-hmm. And as long as I am not confessing that sin, I'm in bondage to that secret mm-hmm. because unconfessed sin becomes a secret. Mm-hmm. And so I walk around and if I know you and Todd are going to have coffee and Todd may have caught wind of this, I'm going to have to work really hard to make sure you two either don't ever have that coffee or I'm going to be at that coffee too, making sure I steer that conversation in certain ways. And so it, it becomes this draining experience of I've got to be hyper vigilant, which gets us back to anxiety. And if we could kind of sew two feelings together here, if Todd's not cooperating because he doesn't know I'm in a conspiracy of my own, if he's not cooperating, I could rage at Todd like, man, you don't have to talk to Duke about that. Or, hey, he, you know, I'm, I'll start living this false role, this false self out here because I've got no freedom. Hmm. I don't even have the freedom for two guys I care about to have coffee together because I've got a secret because I've, I've, I've harmed one of them. And I can't oh. let that out. Yeah, that's so helpful. Bondage. Yeah. What, uh, what does it look like in a community? We have a community that knows how to process guilt well. Um, you know, first off, what, is the, what are some of the preconditions that have to be there for a community to even be a safe place to show up with guilt? I think first is you have to have a place of confession, right? But in the confession, you have to, I mean, you just have to know your own story and your own self of where, you know, at the foot of the cross, they say it's all level, yep. right? And I think so often... We can hear one person's sin versus another person's sin, and we go ahead and rank sin. It's like, no, sin is sin is sin. And I think so often we uh, we don't allow for that mm-hmm. uh, in the church for sure. And so, you know, I can come and confess about lying, but I can't confess about, you know, there's those big three that you can't confess about. It's like So without confession, he said, it, you, you'll never have freedom without that place of confession in the rooms of uh 
SAA, they say, you know, you're as sick as your secrets. Hmm. And so if you have a secret, you're going to manage the secret. And so if you, as long as you're managing without confession, you you will leave and live in bondage. But it is, can we create safe places that we can bring our hearts to? Yes, that we can have correction around. We need correction in sin. Like my kids do sin. I need to correct their behavior. But I got to get to like, they got to be in a safe place that they can fail, they can sin, and there's correction, and there's love, and there's kindness ar- around those those spaces. Yeah, that's helpful. Phil, uh, we talk about relational habitats, and Eden was a relational habitat. Uh, what do you see as the factors that contribute to a community becoming the kind of environment that is safe to come and confess guilt? Even the really ugly stuff that you say is maybe off the, off the chart in some places. Uh, how, do you, how do we create those kind of communities, those safe spaces? If you would imagine if there's a community of people, we'll just say 20 in a room for an even number, imagine those people with each person has a partition between them and everyone else in the room. It's just it's twenty entities in one room, and what what creates those walls to come down is confession combined with confidentiality, mm. which links to intimacy. Into me, see, I take you into my confidence. You take me into yours, and so as the walls lower and I make confession, if you hold that with me redemptively like Todd said, including with correction, but if you hold that with me in confidence, and I take you in my confidence, you take me into yours, the word confidence means with fidelity, hmm. you know, confidelis, it means with fidelity. And so if, I, if you can keep this, if you can be loyal to me, not in terms of keeping my sin a secret, but if you can be loyal to me and say, I will hold that onto that with you, Duke, I'll hold on that with you, Todd, with you, Phil, I'll hold onto it with you, and th- those walls lower, and that becomes a reinforcing agent in any given room in the body of Christ. As those walls go down, and you will, you, you'll, you'll have people that are locking arms. If you look at rope, you know, it, it, the walls go down, and the rope shows up, everybody holding on the rope with one another, mm-hmm. and saying, this is where I am, and I know where you are because we're holding this same rope together, together in this. That's how those communities I love— Kurt Thompson's wording, the groups they do at his practice, they're called confessional communities. Mm. So these communities gather and they get in that room and they lower those walls and they look at one another's stories and they process the story and they confront one another. And yet they, they end up holding the same rope together as mm. one, one falls, they, the others can pull and pull. vice versa. I love that. Even the language of First John 1, this idea that if we'll confess mm-hmm. our sins to one another, we'll have fellowship. Mm-hmm. And there's a, there's a kind of fellowship. You sometimes see it. Well, you see it a lot in the recovery communities because everybody is practicing confession mm-hmm. in that kind of an environment okay. that they have a lot of friendship, a lot of depth of relationship, a lot of attunement and attachment happens in those communities. And maybe the, the flip side is what you were talking about with the Pharisees. would imagine the performance and the pretending of the Pharisees, probably a pretty lonely community, not a lot of trust, not a lot of depth of friendship and fellowship, uh, because they're going against the grain of what even First John 1 says has to happen to have real fellowship as sinners who absolutely need a Savior who, who are just like one another, really honestly pretty level at the cross in terms of their need for Jesus. Um, yeah, those those communities over time just feel really different. Mm-hmm. Uh, what can be a little bit tricky is in a church, maybe even a family, uh, when we're saying the right words, we're saying gospel words, um, we're talking about the gospel, but it still doesn't feel like a confessional community where you can really show up. 
you know, and, and there's the cognitive dissonance of like, hey, we're saying all the right stuff, but I'm not going to be the first one to go because this, this is still a performing community <laughs> that feels like you kind of have to be religious. You kind of have to have all your stuff in a pile. Mm-hmm. And if you don't, uh, you're going to get put out somehow or you won't be on a leadership track or you'll, you'll be at sidelined or, or some, there'll be some kind of uh, real cost mm-hmm. that, that will be associated with that. And so uh, when I think about churches, I'm like, hey, there's what you're preaching, but like, what does it feel like? to be a part of it. And I think it's what Paul says in Galatians, right? He says, if anyone's caught in sin, let the body, let you who are spiritual, restore them with a spirit of gentleness. Mm-hmm. So you have to have both. You have to have a spirit, like my desire in confession and repentance with another human is I need to restore them, but I have to do it in the lens of being gentle. I don't think those two things, I don't think there really is. And that that's the grace of my story. I had a church that I felt big time in sin, but they did it with a lot, a lot of grace, mm. uh, did a lot of patience, but they did it with gentleness, mm-hmm. but their long-term goal was true restoration. It's beautiful. And, and they did. They It took two and a half years, but they restored me. Mm-hmm. I lost my job, but they were committed to the restoration process because they, had knew, they knew God would, had called me and gifted me somewhere. But when I repented and walked that journey, they did. They restored me back into full-time ministry. Uh, brought me back and uh, blessed me as a pastor again, um, reordained me. That's beautiful. So I think that's the—I don't think—you don't hear that often. That story in the church is slim to none, yeah. like a real story of gentleness and restoration. Yeah, there's a lot of fear and triumphalism and mm-hmm. that idea that our church has to be exceptional and our church has to have, really have it together, our leaders have it together— Anytime we see evidence to the contrary, we got to sweep down the rug and get rid of that person quickly and pretend that didn't happen, as opposed to you know this confessional community where it's like, oh no, like we all absolutely need the gospel, we need Christ, and at times some of us are going to go deeper into rebellion or sin or have brokenness, but it's just that just means there might require a longer time horizon for us to heal or for us to repent, uh, but we're committed to the short term, long term health of everybody involved, and I think it's a beautiful picture of a healthy community. Mm-hmm. Really, I hear a lot of gospel foundations in that kind of a church. Oh, it's so true. <laughs> you know, uh, you don't get there without a lot of gospel clarity. So uh, thank you for this. This has been uh, super helpful for us. Like I said, all of us have a category for guilt. We know we're sinners and fall, having trolling short of the glory of God. We know that Christ came to redeem, to, to forgive, and to, to give us freedom. Uh, and yet, I've learned a lot just hearing about the nuance of, of what it takes to actually process our guilt in community, process it in relationship. And I know you, the audience, will be served uh, by this podcast. So yeah, thank you guys for this time. Thank you. Thank you, Duke. Thanks for listening to the Ever Present Podcast. If this resource has been helpful to you, we would ask that you share it with your friends. Leave a comment on the podcast platform and help get this resource into the hands of other people. If you want to reach out to us, you can always email us at podcast at edenteam.org. And now as you go throughout the rest of your day, just remember that God's posture toward you is strong, persistent, and positive. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace.